So it's what am I willing to give of myself to the workplace? Uh, do I feel honored? Do I feel respected? Do I feel like I can give my gift? Can I uh, speak truth to power? Uh, and so on. So that I have actually measured over the years with an N of around 500, 600,000 now. And people just are really at giving about 30 to 40% of themselves when they could be giving 70 to 80%. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, a Quantivos coach and the host of Conversations, and my guest today is Dr. Edward Marshall. Dr. Marshall is retired from teaching at the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University, where he was an adjunct professor of leadership. For years, Edward's research, teaching, consulting, and coaching have focused on collaboration in the workplace. His third book, Leadership's Fourth Evolution, Collaboration for the 21st Century, was published in 2021. Welcome, Edward. It's nice to be here, Brian. Thank you for the invitation. Edward, our topic today is the value and impact of collaborative teams. What brought this topic to the fore for you? I'd say the, uh, you know, we're, we're in the early stages in 2022 of a fundamental transformation in um, leadership. And we're moving from a power-based approach, uh, which is really based in compliance and fear to a more principle-based approach in collaboration. We have a long way to go yet. In my work in hundreds of corporate teams uh, at all levels, primarily at the senior level, what I began to see was a tremendous amount of individual pain pain that came from people who were working in this fear-based, compliance-oriented culture and where they made themselves or where they were made basically to be victims of the culture. A second reason is I saw a lot of distrust, breakdowns in relationships, power politics, and what I call low productive energy, meaning everyone that comes to work when they look themselves in the mirror on Monday morning says, you know, why am I doing this? So it's what am I willing to give of myself to the workplace? Uh, do I feel honored? Do I feel respected? Do I feel like I can give my gift? Can I uh, speak truth to power? Uh, and so on. So that I have actually measured over the years with an N of around 500, 600,000 now. And people just are really at giving about 30 to 40% of themselves when they could be giving 70 to 80%. And there is a gap there. And that gap is really kind of a fear gap. 
So I wanted to reduce the pain and to help people build some level of trust to take back some control over their lives and uh, to empower them to uh, be their best selves and for their teams to do their best work. And I wanted to help shift the culture by uh, giving that control back to people. And I wanted to uh, help create psychological safety, ownership and, and trust, which is really the central theme of this work. So uh, to do that, I was challenged by a client that DuPont many decades ago, you know, you talk about collaboration, that's great, but how do you actually do it? And it, he threw down the gauntlet and I really appreciated him doing that because it really set the direction for the rest of my professional life up to and including my work at, at Quantivos as, as a coach. Let me just kind of illustrate this with a story, uh, Brian. You know, uh, this is a true story from one of my clients, a, a tech product team and a technology corporation had about 12 people on it and they were assembled in the conference room. And I would, I'd been asked to observe this team by the CEO and to see what I could do to help. And so in, I observed this, all these folks kind of piling into the room. A team leader comes in about five minutes late, sits at the head of the table and pulls out a sheet of paper. And everybody else didn't know what they were doing there, except the COO had asked them to be there. So he puts up the topics he wants to talk about, says, we got very stringent deadlines, let's get to work. And that's how this team got kicked off. You could see uh, a whole lot of confusion on people's faces, and they said, resignation. And it's just like, okay, I guess that's what we're going to have to do. They weren't going to tell him no, because he was the CEO's emissary. And so three weeks later, at their first check-in meeting, um, only nine of the 12 showed up. Only a few of the updates that were supposed to be delivered got delivered, and uh, the team leader afterwards chased down those three and gave them a talking to. And about two weeks after that, there was another update meeting, and this time only half the team showed up. The meeting got canceled. The team leader was furious, headed right to the COO's office. And the next thing we know is the COO sends an email to the, uh, to the six and comes to the next meeting and confronts the team leader <laughs> in the meeting and convenes this conversation about, you know, why aren't you guys doing what you're supposed to do? End of the day, the team leader failed, the team failed, product was late, quality was low. And I went back to the CEO and um, I said, well, here's what happened. And he said, why do you think that's the case? I said, well, it's a command and control kind of kind of culture in this team. So I realized there had to be a better way. He said, well, what would you propose differently? I said, well, you know, we get work done through people. <laughs> that's, that's how it works. <laughs> and, you know, we get work done through teams these days, especially today. At that time, that was not the case. But Today, that's that's the 80, 80, 90% of the work is how we, that's how we get things done. The team is the fundamental building block in an organization for how work gets done, how change happens, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided to really focus on developing a method that would enable people to reverse this uh, situation by creating a different culture within the team, one that was more 
trust-based, one that was less, was principle, founded on principle, one that was really going to provide some psychological safety and give them ownership. So that was the what ended up and what is now the formula that I've put together as to how do you actually achieve not only a collaborative team, but how do you create a collaborative culture for an organization? And it's psychological safety plus ownership equals trust. Edward, you're bringing up a number of topics that are critical in the workplace today, not just in terms of teams. I want us to come back and focus on that. But the importance of people relating to people, not role to role. Right. The recognition that if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm probably in the wrong room. That everybody in this room brings wisdom and experience and value that they can contribute. The whole concept of psychological safety, which is what allows me to bring my full self into the workplace. And certainly underlying all of that is the importance of trust. Nobody can function without trust. You know, you get on an airplane and you have to trust that the mechanics have done their job, that the pilot has done their job. It's not explicit. We don't talk about it, but it's implicit in everything we do. A team cannot get its work done if they don't trust each other and if they don't trust the team. But I've spent a lot of time in the toiling in the fields in my 37 years in business, working with client after client, and actually, how do you actually create that? And that's where I've learned that Amy Edmondson's concept of psychological safety, there are others, of course, she really has popularized it. And without that, you cannot, and without the ownership piece, you can't have trust. You're right. Everyone brings a gift to the table. Uh, We want to be able to access that gift. That's the productive energy part. You can't do that unless there's a high trust environment. I used to have the formula high trust equals high performance, but I've since learned in the last 10, 15 years that it really is about psychological safety plus ownership. The key distinctive characteristic of collaboration that distinguishes it from every other leadership paradigm is this construct of ownership. Why that psychological safety is so important, just a little bit of neuroscience here for our listeners, is that trust and distrust are actually located in different parts of the brain. Trust is located in the prefrontal cortex, which is where our problem-solving, our reason-thinking, our creative energies, and so forth come from. Distrust is located in the same area of the brain as the amygdala, the site of fight, flight, freeze, appease. So if I don't have that psychological safety, as you said as, uh, when we began, I'm operating out of that fear, out of that self-protection, out of that, how do I protect myself now? I was just coaching one of our coachees to this very issue. And he's, he has a a boss that he needs to say something to, and he won't say it to him because he's afraid he'll get fired. He's in a very high-stress environment, and he's new to his position, but he's afraid. It turns out that everyone in this organization is afraid all the way up to the top. People 
check out. <laughs> they stop giving of themselves at the boundaries of distrust or fear that keeps them from being their full selves. So how do you build that psychological safety, that environment that allows collaborative teams to flourish? Interesting you should ask that, Brian. <laughs> In a collaborative team, the process that I developed, actually co-created with my clients at DuPont and Marriott and Microsoft and many other companies is called collaborative team governance. And the collaborative team governance process has a specific methodology to it that is grounded in, it's, it's principle-based because that's the, the nature of this culture that we're trying to create. And it's very structured and we can go on any team, any kind of team can use it at almost any stage in their evolution. I've gone in to fix them <laughs> and have been worked with merger teams and transformational teams, reorganization teams, and so on. So they're all different kinds, but the same basic process happens. And that is uh, to have it front-loaded in the team's development, preferably, as opposed to having it be an intervention. What I mean by front-loaded is that in a team's change process, it has to be relationship first, culture first, by which I mean if you think of a Venn diagram with culture at the top and then process on one side and, and structure on the other, most team development work has been in the structure content process and, and content side. And I did that early on, way back in the beginning of my company. And I found it failed. It failed because they go back into the workplace and it's to be the same old, same old within hours or days at the most. And what was missing was the cultural component. So I've added to Telcut Parsons Circle the, Venn, the top circle of the Venn diagram, the culture circle. And that really came from my work uh, way back in, in India, where I learned that culture drives behavior. And I began to explore, well, how do we transform our shared beliefs, our shared values into how we want to work with each other, into building a trust-based relationship? And that forms the foundation of a collaborative team. So it's front-loaded. My clients always said, well, you know, we don't want soft, touchy-feely stuff. I said, okay, we're not going to do off-sites. We're not going to go away and do a ropes course. We're going to do this on-site with a real work issue sitting just on the other side of the governance process, which usually takes two to three days of time, depending on the team and their level of dysfunction. And so real work in real time became a a moniker for this because that says, okay, this is relevant. This is why I should do this work because, you know, senior leaders coming into a room with some consultant, they're saying, why, you know, who are you and why should I listen to you? And so I developed a process to address that issue directly because they have a right to ask that question. They've been in all these leadership development processes and, you know, they're stressful and, you know, it takes away time and, you know, there's no relevance to, to what they're doing in their daily lives. I wanted this work to be directly relevant to everything that they were doing and that they would own it. It wasn't me doing something to them. It was them you know, facilitating a process in which 
they get to take control over their own work life. A while back, I was talking with Will Scott, who's the author of The Culture Fix. And one of Will's really, uh, I, I think, profound insights is that leaders don't lead organizations. They lead cultures because the culture is how we think and how we behave and, and what we do and how we show up and all of those things that are said and unsaid about life in the organization. That's right. So to be very intentional about saying, this is how we're going to show up on this team. This is how we're going to behave. This is how we're going to think about one another. To really pay attention to that on the front end is true leadership. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, you know, it's about our assumptions and our perceptions and every individual walking into that room has different hopes and dreams and expectations. They have families that they love and care for deeply and want to make sure that they're taken care of. All that is brought along with all of the dysfunction, their personal issues, all that crowds. It's a very crowded room. <laughs> but, you know, you go back to the team I just talked about, they used, as most corporations do, Tuckman's storming, norming, forming approach to leadership, which he wrote in 1977. And he said he never proved it. It was just a theory. But American industry took that and ran with it. And then they wonder why their teams end up on the rocks. And what my clients used to say, it was storming, 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 non-performing. That was really what was happening. So we needed a different approach. It is indeed that um, leaders don't lead organizations, they lead cultures. I call that a leadership culture. And that leadership culture is a, a paradigm that is based upon a set of assumptions. And you either have a fear-based or you have a principle-based, trust-based approach to, to leadership. That I think it's that dichotomous at this point. Covey really helped us, helped me in particular, understand the importance of principle-centered leadership. And, you know, the, the whole idea of really a leader's credibility is based upon their ability to influence, to serve others, and so on. So there's a whole body of thought and literature on uh, people who've worked with companies. And, and, you know, I've tried to organize that. I did organize that into a roll up your sleeves, dirt under the fingernails. Let's figure this out together with the client on the spot doing their real work. And that, you know, it was a tough slog for many years, but it has worked. I think you're right to really emphasize the importance that this is all cultural and that we need to consciously go into the creation of a collaborative team with that in mind, that what we're doing is creating a different kind of culture. When I worked at Marriott with a team called Team Alpha, we were one of eight transformation teams in the lodging organization. And I deployed this method and it was a cross-national, cross-level team. And out of 1,800 people, 75% of them were gonna lose their jobs. But we gave them ownership over the change process and came back and gave it. It was profoundly successful. We had a 97% participation rate. And, you know, this woman came up to me in one of the meetings and said, finally, management is actually listening to us on the front line because they know where all the bodies are. Management doesn't know where the bodies are. 
you got to listen to your people. That's how work gets done. <laughs> but that team created a little rumble in the culture at Marriott at the time because they were a highly collaborative, high trust team. And so they had to defend their boundaries a little bit on that and then try to influence others. Same thing happened to VMware. It's amazing work. I've seen people's lives change in front of my, my eyes. Philips Healthcare, this happened, a team that was just dysfunctioning. The CEO had come, CEO had come out and said, you're all going to lose your jobs if this software doesn't get out in the next three weeks. And it all boiled down to a conflict between two people. And this process within one day helped those two people learn how to speak with each other. And it was because they took ownership of how they were going to work with each other and developed a decision-making agreement, an operating agreement, where they all agreed to how they were going to make decisions. And that process, which took some time, particularly that agreement, uh, resulted in, a, in some healing that happened, which goes back to the reason why I started this work in the first place. We're not going to have time to go through the whole process, but you raised something that I think is very important about this, which is you're creating a culture that typically is countercultural to the broader organizational culture. That's right. And that team still has other teams that it is a part of. How do you make that work successfully? That's a great question, Brian. I think s central to this is this ownership principle. The agreements that these folks make with each other, and there are up to 14 of them, most teams only needed eight or nine, was that they all had to agree 100% true consensus, no reservations, which is the gold standard for collaboration, meaning you work through your differences. You don't sweep them under the rug. You don't have can live with because that's not true consensus. That's where most teams ended up. Like, well, we can't do true consensus. We don't know how to do that. We've never done it. It won't work. And then I proved to them it does work as we go through this process, because I wouldn't go through the governance process with them unless they agreed to that rule for our success. And that was the, the magic ointment, if you will. That's the magic pill that when they did made that decision and they owned that decision, then transformations began to happen. What happened then relative to your question was they would take that out to other people. They became ambassadors for change in their own culture. And I had at Microsoft, I had two of the business leaders who would not work with each other before this process actually ask me, to come work with their departmental groups, their departmental teams, which was a cross-functional team. And so there's a rollout that happens when people take care of what they own. They don't wash rented cars. So if they own how they're going to work with each other and they share those agreements, then they become ambassadors for that principle of ownership and trust with everyone else in their organization. And it's not threatening because they all know people who respect them and the stuff works. So most of the teams I work with, they don't all do it, but they would become beacons for hope uh, and beacons for change. So I found that you can actually come with teams as these collaborative teams as the unit of cultural transformation. You can actually scale up into a large organization fairly quickly. If I can come to work as who I am, 
the best version of who I am. Yes. Because I feel trusted, I tr feel respected, I feel valued. I feel like not only do I believe I have something to give, but others are wanting to receive that, to hear that, to see that. Now we're addressing issues of employee engagement, employee retention, productivity, all of those challenges that we are hearing more and more about in the workplace today. Yeah, one of my clients at DuPont did this in about with about 400 people. I helped them do that. And they became, people were lining up to get into the IT organization. I mean, where have you ever heard of that? I did this with a CEO of a, of a clinical trials organization. Same thing happened. People were lined up to get in because of that culture. Uh, you're absolutely right. Could not, yeah, I mean, you said it extremely well. Edward, we have to wrap this up. Any last words on the value and impact of collaborative teams? Yes, I just say three things. This is all about, as we've been talking, psychological safety plus ownership equals trust through this governance process. That true consensus, no reservations, is the magic sauce. And there are ways to achieve that. And lastly, that it's about we, it's not about me. In South Africa, I learned the term Ubuntu, that, that I am because we are. We is the notion that we are collectively responsible for each other, for our team, and for our company's well, well-being, uh, I think is the fundamental shift that needs to happen here. Thank you, Edward Marshall. Thank you very much, Brian Gorman.